Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I answered my front door to a man dressed as a postman. He was not a postman, he threw sulfuric acid into my face and then attempted to stab me. There's at least, at least one club in Scotland that I believe is under the direction of organised crime. They'd actually been given the keys of a public community centre to the astonishment and disgust of many people in the community who knew it was their drugs killing people. I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He is the Scottish politician who says football is contaminated with drugs money and that the tentacles of the Kinahan organisation run deep into the heart of the Glasgow underworld. And Russell Finlay knows more than the regular politician about such issues because for years he worked as an investigative crime reporter who himself became headline news when he was targeted in an acid attack at his home. Today, I'm talking to Russell about the deep connections and the blood bonds between the Irish and the Scottish first families of crime. He tells me of the killers and criminals who had out for years in Kinahan safe houses on the Costa. About the fake bake tan tycoon who became part of their inner circle. And about his fears that mobsters and gang bosses have set their sights firmly on football. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Let's start with last week when you stood up in the Scottish Parliament and you had something to tell your fellow politicians about crime, the Kinnahans and what's been going on in Scotland. Yeah, so following the announcement in Dublin, I uh, noted the connection that was explained to Scotland and it didn't come, in, come as any surprise to me because I'd been aware of Kinnahan connections to Scotland for quite some time. I didn't know about this particular connection about this vodka company, which looks like no more than a, a front company. It doesn't appear to be in any way a serious or meaningful business. Um, but I thought it was important to take the opportunity to say to people in Scotland, this isn't just an Irish organised crime gang or indeed something that's of interest to people in Europe or, or the American authorities, but in many ways it illustrates the global nature of organised crime now and how it's not just on our doorstep, but woven through the fabric of Scottish society. Well, let's start with Nero Vodka, which is the name of the vodka company, which of course was sanctioned during uh, the announcement by the US Treasury, along with Johnny Morrissey, who is the main man. Um, and while she wasn't mentioned by name, his wife, Nicola Morrissey, is put forward as the front person, I think it was described, for the company. Um, now, Nero, we have been watching in the Sunday world because Johnny Morrissey is an old friend of ours and we've been writing about him for a long time. He was here at one point before he moved over to Spain and he would be the biggest spender of them all, if you ask me. Um, and has showed off his wealth on social media along with his wife and 
their various outings and their enormous home and all the rest of it. Uh, they even had a huge star-studded bash during COVID for Nero Vodka. And it's been sold in the court and glaze in, in Spain and all over the UK. But the company's registered, I think, in Scotland. And, of course, Nicola Morrissey, his wife, is Scottish. Yeah, it's a Glasgow-registered business. I had a look at Company's House, and as you say, his wife is on the paperwork. Uh, but nonetheless, no matter what the public record shows, the American and international authorities are pretty clear that this is nothing more than a vehicle for Canadian drugs money. Yeah, and Morrissey himself was described um, as an enforcer for the gang, and he, this company of his, 80% of the profits of it, I think, were going to Daniel Kinahan because he appears to have lost a couple of uh, drug loads for him or whatever the, the true story is there, I don't know. But irritatingly, maybe for the Scottish public, um, during hard times, they've been bailing out Nero Vodka. Yeah, it was revealed about a week later that the UK government's furlough scheme had been uh, applied for by somebody working for the company, we can only assume it's probably the man himself or indeed his wife. Uh, we don't know the exact sums. Um, there's a sort of bigger problem around furlough. I assume it's the same in other countries where in the rush to get money out to support businesses and support jobs, um, that was exploited and, and fraudsters uh, saw some rich pickings. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, people like that also seem to have help themselves. And Nero Vodka also had sponsored a football team in Scotland and I think you raised concerns that we all know now about the Kinnahans and the influence of organised crime in boxing but that this was also infiltrating into the football world as well. Yeah, there's a bit, bit of an overlap I think. I mean, boxing has always been associated with criminality. Um, I mean, going way back, I was aware of a boxing promoter in Glasgow or more than one who are, who are effectively what you would term nowadays as organised criminals. Um, but football in Scotland has also got a serious problem, in my opinion. And it's, I suppose, at two or perhaps three main levels. One is the ownership of clubs. There have been a number of clubs over the years identified as having been uh, influenced or part-owned by organised criminals. It's not always immediately obvious. The company house records don't always put it in uh, neon lights. It's, it's usually done with front people. But that is something that remains a problem. Um, there's at least, at least one club in Scotland that I believe is effectively uh, under the direction of organised crime. And th the other two issues are the uh, world of football agents. Now, I'm not saying agents always had a great reputation, but we've seen a number of organised criminals in Scotland deciding to target young footballers and uh, make a lot of money out of them through transfers and through their earnings. Because, you know, it doesn't take very much in terms of selling players, especially to the English market, where you can get a serious amount of money. Uh, just last week, a newspaper here identified, or rather couldn't identify, but at least identified an individual without naming him who was heavily involved in the football transfer market and is facing organised crime charges. So that, that's another element. And, and 12 months ago, the Scottish government, along with the police and along with some of the clubs, produced a video warning players of this phenomenon of the gangland uh, you know, agents and what I asked the, the Justice Secretary in Parliament is that's great, hats off for this video, but what's happened since? And unfortunately, I've not really had any kind of meaningful answer. And I suppose just going back to the, the three points about football, the other one is around the betting market. There's been suggestions over the years of uh, organised crime causing certain, influencing certain players, certain events in order to you know, make money from gambling. Mm. Um, your comments in Parliament didn't go down too well, I noticed. You were sort of uh, not silenced, but you certainly, you didn't see people standing up behind you and having your back, um, which is sad, really, to say the least. But I don't usually have too many politicians. In actual fact, I think you're the first politician to be interviewed on Crime World. So just to set the scene for people, um, the reason why 
your comments, I think, hold a lot of gravitas. And why we have you on here is because, largely because of your previous life, you're not a politician very long. Um, in the near past, you were, of course, a crime journalist. And you got out of that game because of a very serious incident that happened to you in 2015. Yeah. Well, um I was a journalist. Uh, some might call me the Scottish version of Nicola Talent. I don't know. I wouldn't want to be so presumptuous. Um, <laughs> but I, I, like you, you know, you, you, you're, you're a journalist and I reported extensively on organised crime, but also other things. And then you become, it, it becomes a bit of a snowball effect. Um, and one thing I think, go back to your original comments, and I'll come, on, I'll come back on to what happened to me in a minute, but I think journalists yourself and others who have pursued the Kinnahans and people like that deserve great credit and they don't always get that. I think the authorities can be a bit sniffy towards journalists who put a spotlight on what could be deemed to be their failings and not being able to stop these gangs sometimes. And I think there's also a bit of snootiness towards certain types of publication, red top tabloids. Uh, now they're not perfect, but they do a sterling job in exposing really unpleasant individuals who cause absolute misery in the communities that the people who, who read these publications live and know fine well what's going on. Um, so that, that's that's worth seeing. And um, what happened to me in 2015, having written extensively about a lot of these different organised crime groups in Scotland, I answered my front door to a man dressed as a postman. He was not a postman, he threw sulfuric acid into my face and uh, then attempted to stab me. My 10-year-old daughter came downstairs to see me fighting with this guy on the doorstep. Uh, the guy had lost control of his knife, uh, which probably saved my life. And he also managed to see his getaway driver disappearing over the horizon. Uh, by this point, neighbours were alerted and the police came and I handed the guy over and he's still doing his time for that. Um, he is a sort of well-known thug. He stood trial for a murder and got a, a not proven verdict. He's got a track record of using guns and other violence. And he, um, I believe, uh, I, I wrote a book about that experience and I identified what the cause of that was. Um, and the individual in question is connected to the Lyons family. Not that, as the book says, they directed what happened to me, but that is one of his uh, strong associations. So I don't want to linger too much on that because I'm sure it's not something you particularly like talking about, but uh, you were just pottering around your house and there was a knock on the door. You had no warning whatsoever that there was any threat against your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent 25 years with my photograph not even being in the public domain because I was very conscious of the fact that I wouldn't want to be out and about and be, be known in any way. It was a deliberate decision. So someone had done some serious research. And I think, you know, they use tracking devices. They use, uh, they can ping your mobile phones. I don't know if they still can do that, but they can they can plot people. Um, they'd done some recon. It turns out the hitman had been under police surveillance because he was also wanted over the shooting of a rival drug dealer outside a primary school in Glasgow. Um, and the, the, the door went and, they, as I say, the fact they'd gone to the lengths of dressing as a postman. But he gave everyone a right good laugh in court when he said that I'd been trying to blackmail him and he turned up on my doorstep without any keys, without any money, dressed as a postman, and I had ambushed him. He didn't know where I lived. He's just, he just kept wandering the streets until he found out where I lived. So, you know, this was his defence in court. And uh, while I can laugh about it now, you know, you, you do wonder if what if a jury falls for this nonsense and thankfully they didn't but yeah I mean, it, it was an extremely serious incident and I didn't actually get out of newspapers because of it the newspaper game in Scotland a bit like in Ireland I'm sure is tough it's a tough environment I, I left parted company with my then employers and did some freelance work but frankly struggled to, to really make ends meet I'd already explored the possibility of getting involved in politics for a number of reasons, not least the whole issue of criminal justice in Scotland and record drugs deaths and what I see as being some serious failings over the years and being able to address that properly. But also in Scotland, there's, there's, there's many more issues of, of concern, but yeah. 
Mm. And physically, I'm sure it took a while to recover, but um, did you recover kind of mentally, totally, or will you yeah, ever? Yeah, no, I mean, physically, it took a few months before the that one of my eyes was deemed to be fine. Uh, so I was extremely fortunate. When you look at some of the people who suffered acid attacks, they've got serious facial disfigurement. So I'm beyond fortunate and I count my blessings. Um, but mentally as well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound flippant, but I think perhaps because everything that went could have gone wrong for him that day did, and everything that could have gone right for me did. My guardian angel was looking after me. Um, I, I didn't, I, I, I'm not saying I'm flippant, I'm ultra cautious about my own security. I remain so, I don't think the threat has gone. Uh, but I don't feel, you know, it's not like I've had any kind of diagnosis of PTSD or anything of that nature. Um, so I've just, extremely good fortune. I think, funny enough, actually, people who go into crime journalism have got some sort of coping skills or abilities to deal with a bit of stress. Um, I just think that's part and parcel maybe of what you need to actually stick with it at all. Yeah, I mean, I read a book review of one of, my, of the book about the acid attack and... Um, some critic was having a pop at me because I didn't appear to be taking it seriously enough. <laughs> so yeah, you're perhaps expected to react in a different way and be broken into pieces. But, you know, you kind of, I was angry and, and I felt like I'm not putting up with this. Um, I, what's, the, what's the option? Do you surrender and go away and curl up or do you just make a stand? And it's not, that's not bravery. It's simple common sense. You cannot walk away you know it's not to be reckless or, or take a take a gamble with your own welfare but it's it's it was really the only option yeah it's a very difficult situation um so let's get on to the lions family and these really this criminal grouping they are the ones who seem to have made the strongest connections with the kinahan mob and to be honest with you russell i would nearly see the kinahans as being a scottish irish mob I always have for a long time. I think that the connections are so strong and I think that um, they've always had one another's backs, the Irish and the Scottish out there when they were kind of becoming what they what they are today. But when they were becoming that mafia, you know, over the years, there was always talk of the Scots and the Irish working together. And, um, you know, there's a lot of cultural reasons the Scots and the Irish maybe feel connected and um, maybe that, filters down into the underworld too. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, and it's interesting to hear you say that they're almost one entity, um, and it doesn't really surprise me. Um, the first awareness I had, I think, of that meaningful connection, there's, there are two gangs, or there were two kind of dominant gangs in Scotland who were battling for control of the sort of street markets, and it reminds me a bit of... The, the kind of hutch narrative, if you like, in Scotland with the Daniels and the Lions, which sounds very biblical. Um, and 20, 21 years ago, the sort of upstart Lions, as they were then, stole a stash of cocaine from a house. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it was nothing, but the Daniels decided to hit back and they uh, drove them from the local area in North Glasgow. Um, where I became particularly interested in that wasn't so much the, the drugs war that had broken out, but it was the fact the lines at that point had courted local politicians in Glasgow. They'd courted certain police officers and used them to help legitimise themselves. They'd actually been given the keys of a public community centre to the astonishment and disgust of many people in the community who knew it was their drugs killing people. And, and that was my real interest. So the Lions and the Daniels were, you know, tit for tat violence. And this really got serious uh, in an incident, I think it was about 2007, when the Daniels got hold of British army uh, weapons that had been sold to them by serving Scottish soldiers and went to an MOT station. It reminds me a little bit of the way in bloodbath in Dublin, not to this, quite the same extent, but they, t yeah. they turned up two of them with proper military firepower and shot three people, only killing one, surprisingly, a member of the Lions family. Um, not long after that, the Lions, I think, um, 
it was kill or be killed. I think there was no truce likely, and there were sporadic outbreaks of ever more extreme violence, including, for example, shooting people outside of schools where there's young children. Um, and where it came to a, a kind of a, a turning point, the, the biggest single moment perhaps was the murder in 2010 of a Daniel associate called Kevin Carroll. He was shot dead outside a, an Asda supermarket. And the person who did that almost immediately fled to Marbella, to the Costa del Sol, along with uh, Stephen Lyons, who was one of the people who'd been shot in the MOT station a few years earlier. Stephen Lyons mm. being the kind of boss, if you like. And I don't know how it happened, but, you know, the Costa del Sol's a, a bit of a criminal's playground and the Lyons uh, either inherited or formed an allegiance with the Kinnahans. And fast forward a few years and Patterson, the, the hitman, William Patterson, he uh, spent many years on the run. He was subject to the usual wanted posters and so on. And rather embarrassingly, he was never caught. He just decided that having fathered a child with his long-term partner while on the run, he would hand himself in because he reckoned he would be acquitted of the murder of Carol, which he wasn't. He's now been convicted of that. But what that seems to have sparked was a chain of events where the lines from being on the back foot and effectively having had to flee Scotland um, were now in the ascendancy. They had this sort of Kinnahan backing, if you like, but they also had the drugs importation on a vast scale. It's all very well um, controlling the streets, but it's half the problem is getting it regular, safe, consistent supplies in. And, 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 and so it's a quid pro quo, I suppose. The Lions could give them access to Scotland right across the central belt, Glasgow to Edinburgh. And uh, mm. they, there, was, they were mute. Having control of that... That the wholesale contacts is 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 deeply important to to keep the power. Um, so they they were coming up young, and they decided that they were going to ingratiate themselves within community groups. You said they were they were looking to what uh, get involved in local community group charities, or what was it that they were trying to? Well, the the, the, the father who was by all accounts a wannabe sort of failed gangster. Um, he had been the subject of some violence and had had to move to this community. This sort of predates witness protection schemes and the like, um, but he was known as a grass. He was just a kind of bit of a, a tragic figure. And he seemed to have this idea that his sons would be proper gangsters. And, you know, he, he didn't just nurture them in that lifestyle and that world, but also their friends. And it's pretty tragic because a lot of these kids will have come from broken homes and had no, no opportunities in life. And the, the father, Eddie Lyons, um, he, I think I understand he's quite a persuasive and quite a charismatic individual. He managed to persuade the local police that he was a good guy. He managed to persuade the um, local labour councillors that he was a good guy. They, one of them invited him to the opening of uh, parliament one session. He, the, the community centre was lying open, as is often the way with local authorities. It costs money to run these places. So if you've got a community group willing to take it on, and, you know, that's that's one less headache. So that's what happened. But for years, mm. um, there was a number of really, really brave uh, fathers in Milton and Glasgow who I've got the utmost respect for because they were disgusted that the police and the politicians were legitimising an organised mm -hmm. crime group in their community and not only did they get ignored by the authorities for years but they were smeared and bullied and you know it was really really disgusting what happened and it's never really been fully explained or apologised for um, eventually what what prompted the eviction from that uh, from that uh, community centre was following the MOT station shooting. When you've got parents saying, kids aren't safe here at this community centre, and then just 
half a mile away, there's a triple shooting using British Army guns as part of what has become a massively escalating drug war. They could ignore it no longer and finally evicted the lines. And of course, the significance of that kind of behaviour, while it's small, tentative local steps, it's trying to break into the establishment, essentially, and to have influence. And that's what these criminal gangs do. And that's the kind of um, the darker side of them, really. And when they start moving into, it's like we're talking about, they're moving into sports, they're moving into influence those those areas. And it's giving them credibility and it's giving them this ultimate legitimization of what it is they're doing. Um, and that's really why it's important, I think, to report on them and to, um, you know, stop them on their way up because they could obviously go further than that. The first kind of uh, indication we have that Stephen Lyons is moving with the Kinnahans is around 2006 when I think there's a report that he's he's with the Kinnahans in the Costa del Sol, which is the seat of their power at this stage. And Christy Kinahan has established himself as a massive big wholesaler in Europe. His son, Daniel, is down on the Costa along with Christy Kinahan Jr., who's also been sanctioned. And they have a kind of a mob of their childhood friends down there with them, working in cell structures. They're bringing cannabis in from Morocco. They're mixing with the, um, the various suppliers of cocaine. And they're becoming bigger and bigger and more influential. By 2010 when Kevin, the gerbil Carol, I think is, his nickname is, is murdered, shot dead in, um, in Scotland. And William Patterson, the hitman, who appears to have been, have had connections back with Ki- Christy Kinahan Sr. By the time they kind of go to Spain looking for refuge, the Spanish under Europol have told us that the Kinahans have been shut down. They have gone in under Operation Shovel. They have raided premises belonging to them. They've arrested them all. Um, and they've seen how big they've become. Europol has sat up to notice how big a threat this Kinahan mob are. But unfortunately, that investigation, that multi-agency investigation was an absolute disaster. It didn't work for a number of reasons. I don't think the Spanish legal system is robust enough maybe to handle organised crime. But it also instead of shutting them down, I think actually empowered them. And what you see then is they become bigger and bigger and bigger. But so around that time, 2010, we have Stephen Lyons either based down in the cost or certainly in and out and, and moving with them. We have William Patterson is hidden away by the, the Kinahans, who of course have a network of safe houses across Spain. And there's also an indication that... Um, Another gangster called Derek Deco Ferguson was was also given some refuge with them. He's another another Spanish character, another sorry Scottish character, um, who's named a lot in in organised crime circles. There, uh, I, yeah, indeed. I'm mean, going back to Patterson when he, uh, well, Stephen Lyons went to Spain, I believe, earlier after the MOT station shooting, and he wasn't he wasn't hiding. He was he was not hiding from the law. He was hiding from the Daniels back home in Glasgow, but. Uh, when Patterson initially went out for all that happened days after the the murder, I don't think the authorities in Scotland formally sought to look for him for quite some time. And he and, he and Stephen Lyons were out cavorting in the flesh pots of Marbella, quite the thing. Um, so, but going back to Derek Ferguson, he is uh, an intriguing individual. He's a highly dangerous, low watt thug from the north of Glasgow. He's, I can't remember what height he is exactly, but he's, he's pretty diminutive. Um, I think he's got part of his ear missing and he's got a nickname, the One Lug Thug. Um, and he uh, is wanted and has been wanted for, uh, goodness knows now, must be almost 15 years for a murder that took place in Glasgow. Um, he uh, uh, is wanted, as I say, in connection with this murder. Another man who is suspected of being involved in this murder uh, was later found dead in an oil drum in the River Clyde. And it seems to be the case that uh, that individual was perhaps a weak link in the first murder and was disposed of. Um, but F- F- Ferguson is, is Scotland's, you know, 
I don't want to sound flippant, but he's clearly the Scottish hide and seek champion. Um, he's, we believe, being shielded by the Kinnahans. It's an extensive network. It runs from Ireland to south of Spain to Holland to presumably South America, Scotland and England. Um, they've got serious sums of money, huge connections. And it's actually quite humiliating because while Patterson, who was on the run for a number of years, was was finally snared, um, they can't get Deco, they can't get Ferguson. They've, they've, they've done an, on a number of occasions, at least once, they went public with a real flurry of information and it looked like the net was closing in. Um, but, but he's proved elusive. And whether he's still alive, there's speculation that whatever purpose he might have served, uh, you know, if you're not earning your keep, then mm-hmm. there's no uh, sentiment and there's no uh, loyalty in that world, I'm sure you know. So whether whether he's, uh, you know, serving a purpose somewhere or whether he's been disposed of as anyone's guess. Mm-hmm. So moving on from about 2010, and um, I think another significant moment in the Scottish-Irish criminal connections um, happens when in 2017, a lady called Sandra Vaughan appears as the buyer of MTK, uh, the gym that had been set up in 2012 by Daniel Kinahan and Matthew Macklin in Marbella, uh, following the Regency attack in Dublin and all the trouble that went with that, Kinahan pulled out and, and sold up to, to this lady in 2017. Now, you, like I, uh, realised that she, she was not unfamiliar to gangland territory. Um, I think both of us had encountered her in the previous years, connected somewhat, although she she certainly doesn't have any criminal convictions. She's um, somebody who seems to have been uh, floating around the Kinahan and Scottish network for a long time. Yeah, she is an intriguing character, and perhaps it's a bit of chauvinism in my part as an assumption that the men run the show, but she's clearly been at the epicentre of a lot of this stuff for many years and clearly she's there because she's serving a very useful purpose. I, it's worth adding that she's known as Sandra Vaughan just now, but how people in Scotland would have known of her was Sandra McClumpha, which is quite a funny surname in many respects, but, <laughs> and, and, I'd, and I'd actually forgotten, I'm sure, I'm sure you're the same, when you look back at some of the things you've written and the connections you forget that you've perhaps made at the time, and there was a very high profile Scottish drug dealer who operates at a sort of international level and whose name I can't say just now because he's subject of, of ongoing proceedings, but going back 10 years, uh, McClumpha, as she was then, her former partner, a guy called Kevin Kelly, was abducted in Marbella and spent 48 hours being subject to all sorts of gruesome torture over what may or may not have been a drug debt. And um, she at the time was linked to a company in Scotland called Fake Bake, the fake tanning company. And there was always a bit of a whiff about it, even more than the product itself. Um, but it, it wasn't what you would be able to explicitly state as organised crime, but there was there was always those associations. So I think it was, I think, the first time I realised that McClumpha and Vaughan were the same person was when the BBC Panorama did their thing and showed the central role she was playing in the Kinahan's boxing empire. And as it happens, around about 2017, when this was all going on and they were moving the furniture and changing ownership, I did a story about the Kinahan's opening a gym in Scotland. Uh, it was called NGM. It was fronted by some lawyer. I think he's moved on. And to me, I, I think I think we, you know, I, I, I'm sure you're the same when you're saying to a news editor or editor, this story really matters because this is game changing, this is fundamental. It was something, it was being able to prove demonstrably and clearly that the Kinnahans were actually having a physical footprint in, in a Scottish community. And we, we, and it was not long after, of course, the, the Dublin weigh-in bloodbath at the hotel. So... It had that kind of seriousness that I think people understood at the time. And MTK, formerly MGM, but later MTK under her uh, stewardship, they really grew in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, at the time they appeared to be a boxing gym with deep pockets and there are, 
you know, as I said earlier on, there's a lot of um, organised criminality, criminality in and around boxing. Um, but what, what I perhaps didn't appreciate again until what you were doing and what others were doing is is, is showing how Daniel Kinahan took what could have been, I suppose, a bit of a hobby gym thing, a bit of a vanity thing, maybe a way of being involved in boxing. And clearly they wanted to kind of own boxing. They wanted to almost apply the organised crime uh, ethos and, and take over to the world of boxing. And so it took me a while to appreciate how big they'd become. And in that time, they've hoovered up your Tyson Furies and, and in Scotland right now, uh, Joshua Taylor, who's a very well-respected boxer, world champion, um, he tweeted not so long ago his uh, admiration for his advisor, Daniel Kinahan, a tweet that since the American sanctions has been deleted. And I, I'm not suggesting wrongdoing in Taylor's part or indeed in the part of any young boxer who finds themselves in this insidious position of, of being on the books of, of particular organisations because very often these guys will be getting uh, carrot and stick, they'll be getting the carrot of, of financial um, lure of, of big money but also there's no doubt that there'll be elements of uh, menace uh, you know, we, we, we saw we saw Barry McGuigan very bravely speaking in the panorama I mean, uh, great respect for what he did but standing up and being counted uh, and he made the point that when fighters in his books were being told you're with us now as in the Kinnahans, there wasn't very much they could do about it and I think also, Russell, that because of what happened here in Dublin in 2016, like MTK never got a fight on here. They just couldn't do it. They kept pushing to try and get a fight on in Dublin, but they were shut down each time. And even at one point, I think they tried to come in a back door to stage it under a different name. It was sussed and cancelled. So in a way... There, there's when Scotland as a physical location becomes more important for them. I think they put a lot, a lot of shows on across Glasgow and Edinburgh over that, that those few years. Yeah, I remember seeing that and being just disgusted. And I perhaps you, you, you work in a bit of a bubble. You're, I'm looking at the Scottish picture, you're looking at the Irish picture. But, you know, perhaps a bit more collaboration would have been a good thing. Um, and... And you're doing other things as well, you know, and you, you naively think sometimes, well, the authorities have got this right. <laughs> and uh, very often they don't, or they don't appear to be doing what you'd like them to be doing. So, Well, you see, I think ultimately it was up to the boxing boards of control and the various uh, ruling groups who decided what would go on and what didn't go on. And I think there was just too much of an insurance problem here in this country. And every time they went and asked for advice, the guards were saying to them, well, this feud is still very much ongoing. So, you know, what could they do? Um, but in in the most recent times that we see more links and, um, you know, a lot of people were discussing maybe don't have criminal convictions, etc. but it's just more that they're moving within criminal circles. Is um, Just last year, I think Tyson Fury took a very public uh, holiday, hollybops as I call them, in Scotland, along with his fr friend Billy Joe Saunders, who of course tried to ask me to write something nice about his friend Daniel Kinahan. Um, but together they were hopping around a golf course and posing for photographs along with another kind of name that's synonymous. Every time you Google Robert Kelby, he's described as the notorious. Um, he has a conviction for fraud and he survived three assassination attempts. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to the Daniel Lyons feud. As that became more and more serious uh, and as the Lions were forming alliances with both the Kinnahans in Spain and a very sub substantial organised crime group in Paisley, the Daniels were also forming their own alliances. So it got to the stage where across the central belt of Scotland, um, you almost had to be with one or the other. Not, not that it was ever as simple as that, but it was in, in large part to the extent now where two of the prisons in Scotland have become... Where the, where, where the respective gang members are housed to keep them apart. Um, but, but Kelby uh, is very much on the side of, of Kinahan Lyons and the other sort of major Edinburgh criminal, uh, Mark Richardson, 
he's very much on the side of the the Daniels. Um, and and Richardson, of course, is in prison at the moment, isn't he? He is indeed, and um, was implicated. Come back to boxing. There was a shooting dead of a high-profile boxing coach, a guy called Bradley Walsh, um, and Bradley Walsh featured in the train spotting film, um, the second one, and that's a well-known, fairly public Edinburgh boxing coach, but liked liked to portray himself as a kind of local, worthy and charitable individual. So going back to Kelby, he, he, he for years was, was kind of under the radar and you, you had to be careful what you wrote about him. He's, he only had a conviction for fraud, as you say. But in, in the past couple of years, he's become more emboldened. He's putting himself out there. He's clearly not too bothered about these photos being in the public domain. There was one just a, a few weeks ago where he was at some boxing event posing with one of the Gallagher brothers out of Oasis, for example. So, yeah, he, he's he's part of the scene with Tyson Fury. I think at the time, he, when he must have been questioned by some media in Scotland, he, he put himself up on his social media as commercial director of the talent team for both Tyson and Billy Joe Saunders, whether that was just his way of having a bit of a joke or not. But um, it's just, again, somebody else sort of intermingling in that world of boxing and, and organised crime. Um, in general, what is... Scotland's criminal underworld like these days? It's still dominated by the Daniels and the Lions and that kind of take which side? Or uh, Well, I think the the, the, the Daniels, the, 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 the older generation, the main man passed away from natural causes. Um, that changed a lot. It, it kind of frustrates me because you don't want to glamorise these people and I know it's almost a bit of a side effect, even when you don't mean to, it can it can it can be a consequence of that. And sometimes they seem to bask in it a bit. Um, but there are other gangs and individuals. There's at least one gang, uh, two brothers who are of a sort of serious international level, who are both subject of extradition proceedings just now from elsewhere in the world, and uh, they, they were operating at a kind of global level. And then you've got another guy who's subject of extradition from elsewhere as well, who in turn we can link to Sandra Vaughan McClumpha and, and and those people, the Scottish-Irish uh, people. So, uh, and it's, it, I'm not actively reporting on it anymore, so I'm perhaps not as abreast of it as, as you are with what, what you're seeing. But, uh, you know, a vacuum is very quickly filled um, and no doubt there will be other people coming through who, who regard it as their territory. I was of course interested in recent weeks to see that there was a Scottish man, a guy called Christopher Hughes, who was convicted of the murder of a blogger, a Dutch blogger called Martin Koch and he was shot dead outside a strip club in Amsterdam some years ago. Actually, it was kind of right smack bang in the middle of the Kinahan Hutch feud. But I think it would be largely suspected that he was, his murder was ordered by uh, associates of Ridu and Taji, of course, who was Daniel Kinahan's business partner, who was before the Marengo trial in the Netherlands. And sometimes we deal with that. We must go back to that and see where that's at. But it's these kind of connections. And it's like to me as if we're constantly building this jigsaw there's probably 10,000 pieces in it and we've maybe got the edges done and little parts of the middle are becoming clear, but it seems that there's an awful lot more connections that are there. And in the same way as policing has managed to come together to formulate a way of taking down the Kinahan mob um, to form the full picture, we all need to speak together as journalists, I think maybe around the world working on it as well. And I know you're not you don't have that hat on you anymore, but um, from going forward and what you hope to do as a politician, um, wh- what do you feel you can do in Scotland and with your, your knowledge, your background knowledge and your own personal experience of being a victim of crime? Yeah, uh, uh, interesting. I mean, there's a couple of points you told the Christopher Hughes case. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. This guy, for some reason, I'm not entirely sure why he stood trial in Scotland and thankfully he was convicted but he was effectively used as a lure. This guy that was shot dead clearly trusted him enough, uh, so it's a pretty despicable thing to do. And he 
uh, has been linked in the past to the two brothers from Scotland who are subject to extradition just now. Uh, so watch the space, that connection will, will eventually be made. But in, in terms of politics, uh, I'm sure your listeners aren't remotely interested in Scottish politics and my views and, on stuff. But, you know, I think the government here is failing Scotland on pretty much every level. Um, but in terms of criminal justice, I think there's long been a vacuum around even talking about organised crime. So the government recently revealed a blueprint for their sort of justice strategy for the for the forthcoming years. And I don't think organised crime merited a single mention, or if so, it was just fleeting. And Scotland, let's not forget, is the drugs death capital of Europe. Our drugs death rate is 3.5 times higher than the rest of the UK with the same drugs laws. Nobody can explain this. Uh, it's it's tragic. It goes up and up and up. And these people make an absolute fortune from it. They're sitting in Dubai, uh, they're sitting in Marbella and profiting from killing people in our poorest communities. And I think the Proceeds of Crime Act, which is 20 years old and was inspired by the murder of Veronica Guirin, has, has failed. It's not to say they've not taken serious sums of money, they have, but it's the tip of the iceberg. I can go down the streets of Glasgow and look at businesses and look at individuals and you just know it's organised crime. It's, it's, as I said at the outset, it's through the fabric of society. And I think the, the police know this stuff. They know exactly who's who. So wh what's the problem? Why are the courts not more, uh, have greater power? Why is the process of crime law not able to do more, uh, harder and, and faster than, than it is? Uh, I think just that, that there's a lot to be done. And even just talking about it. You know, standing up in Parliament saying something and it's a clip and it's online and it, it, it fuels that kind of conversation uh, it, in itself is, is worthwhile because if you're not talking mm. about it, no one is. And, and I think what the, what the Americans and the Irish authorities have done with the Kinnahans is absolutely brilliant because it, it, it takes it away from the kind of periphery and puts it slap bang and, you know, it takes it from the Sunday Mail and the Sunday World to the... New York Times and the BBC, and uh, and that's good because it, it puts pressure on not just the authorities but the white collar enablers. I'm sure where you are, you could identify the lawyers and people of that nature who are happy to um, legitimise and enable these people. And I think they they should be subject to the strongest possible action as well. And you know, I was in court recently in the UK in Islington where Thomas Bomber Kavanaugh was convicted and sentenced to 21 years. He's the Kinnahan's main man and has been in Birmingham uh, running their drugs and guns through England and into Ireland. But um, I noticed at the end of the case, the judge issued proceeds of crime proceedings as a matter of course. And it seems to be every time there's a criminal conviction, a proceeds of crime case follows, which is slightly different to here. Here, we're proactive. The Criminal Assets Bureau are going out after them before maybe they have a conviction. They're going after them and asking them to explain, as opposed to, um, in the case in the UK, Kavanaugh was asked to file a list of his global assets. I mean, I'm sure there's some policing overseeing that, but I wouldn't be asking a criminal to do anything honestly in a million years. That's just not their makeup. But um, I think probably the point of it is, is the investment and the political will in it in the UK and in Scotland to give the asset, to give the the resources to the likes of the, um, the assets recovery agencies, which are actually disbanded and now within the NCA in the UK. I think um, the legislation isn't strong enough and I think the Scottish authorities got their fingers badly burned. When it first came in, they went after an individual proactively and entirely on a civil basis. They didn't have anything to prosecute him on, but he had no means of explaining his vast wealth and assets. That turned into a 10-plus year court saga in which the legal aid bill uh, eventually uh, dwarfed the, the proceeds that had been identified. And I think it exposed the inability of the legislation to, you know, on the balance of probabilities, go after people's wealth. Um, and it became more of a someone's been convicted, right? 
we, are, we, we said you've made X. Although just this week there was one where the authorities said this, this, this individual had made hundreds of thousands of pounds and the proceeds of crime was for a pound because they couldn't find any assets. Um, so it's almost become a retrospective taxation on drugs money, um, which is better than nothing. But given, I mean, I could tell you businesses in Glasgow that are on the face of it, respectable transport businesses, food businesses, uh, hospitality, uh, football, of course, you do wonder what, why they're not much more aggressively going after these businesses because it's drug money. That's what underpins it all. It is, and it, it, it's, it usurps every other finance and even money being pumped in from government resources into policing. The drug money, as we can see from the Kinahans, being worth one billion. Um, and of course, it's the users of these drugs that are empowering these guys. And that message is slightly forgotten sometimes in the whole scheme of things. Yeah, I think in Scotland... The government here have decided, such as the drug death crisis, that it's to be treated as a public health issue primarily. And that makes a lot of sense. Nobody really disputes that. There's no point in prosecuting a heroin user and the revolving door of court and prison uh, to what end. You know, it's about treating the root cause and helping people get off drugs and giving people opportunities that they don't get involved in drugs in the first place. My worry is that in Scotland, it's not either or, but it's almost as if the government are putting all their eggs in that basket and the organised criminals um, aren't going to go away. They're just going to keep the business coming and find all sorts of new ways to, 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 beat, to beat the system. And you should be doing both simultaneously. There's a UK-wide um, policing operation called ADDER, I think it probably gets it right because I can't remember exactly what ADDER stands for. It's an, an acronym, but it's about both treating individuals and communities that need the help, but also coming down hard on, on the gangsters, which is uh, absolutely vital. Absolutely. Well, Russell Finlay, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.